It's great to have you joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman, coming to you from Atlanta in March of 2023. We often talk on the show about how there's a need to shift society's diets to plant-based and avoid farming and killing animals based on ethical, ecological, and public health issues. Well, today we're going to talk about how activists can strategically frame messages about our food system to best promote a collective shift to animal-free lifestyles in the United States, in part by talking to us about talking to talking to us as citizens and voters, not just as consumers. And talking to us as if we're evolving together towards an animal-free food system, overcoming a sense of futility that our individual consumer actions don't matter. This advice is based on an interesting 18-month study on American animal attitudes via interviews, surveys, and focus groups that test messages conducted by the nonprofit Pax Fauna. In their name, PAX stands for peace and FAUNA stands for animal. PAX FAUNA is a nonprofit that exists to design a more effective social movement for animal freedom in the U.S. Using original research as well as careful study of social movement literature and the recent history of the animal movement in order to reverse the cultural norm of eating animals. Their website is paxfauna.org and that's spelled P-A-X-F-A-U-N-A. PaxFauna.org. Our guest today is Eva Hamer, operations lead at PaxFauna. Eva has been organizing in the animal freedom movement since 2015 when she started working with Direct Action Everywhere, known as DXE, in Chicago, where she focused on building community, writing protest music, and compiling the movement's songs into an online songbook used by advocates around the world. She started working full-time at DXE's as DXE's legal coordinator, in 2018, managing the organization's many legal cases, organizing trainings, and orchestrating large artistic demonstrations. She also worked for years as a music therapist in a hospice setting. Building on a background in Kingian nonviolence, Eva is a dedicated student of nonviolent communication, and she is committed to bringing that peace-promoting repertoire of creative problem-solving skills to the work of building a better culture in the animal movement. Welcome, Eva. Hi, Carrie. Thanks so much for having me. Now, why did you and your two partners start Pax Fauna? So we started Pax Fauna because we had been working in the grassroots animal freedom movement for, for some years, mostly on a volunteer basis, and we had really big dreams for the movement. I mean, we'd all gotten involved because we saw horrendous suffering happening to animals on a scale that we couldn't imagine. And when we were invited to start doing work on this cause, we we kind of felt hope around that for the first time in our lives. And over the years, our I think our hope kind of dwindled a little bit. You know, we we saw right. some of the same actions happening and just not the progress that we really wished for. And some of some questions about like, how could we get there faster? How could we get there more directly? We're, we're going unanswered. There were some ways that people kind of, we all have our different opinions about the best way to go about doing the work that we want to see done in the world. But we just felt like there wasn't really enough information about what works. And we started Paxvana to answer some of those, those questions and then put those results directly into practice. And I noticed you refer to uh, our movement as the animal freedom movement rather than a movement for animal rights or animal liberation or animal protection. What's the strategic rhetorical choice to emphasize animal freedom? 
you know, I'm not sure we have a clear answer on what the best words are. We haven't studied this question directly, but there is some thinking that, you know, rights is a framing that might not make sense to a lot of people because when we think of rights, we think of something almost like thinking of um, like an elephant in a courtroom, like, like it's his voting. civil yeah, rights. Right. Exactly. Action. Exactly. Somebody's saying like, oh, so you think pigs should be able to vote. Um, we, I mean, protection is definitely a word I, I sometimes use. Yeah. Um, and, and freedom, you know, we're an American organization. We think freedom is, is something that everybody thinks is really important. And so that's a, that's a word that we often use and completely undetermined right now. And I'm, I'm not going to put that one forward as a, as a main recommendation from any of our research. Yeah. It's, although I think it's nice to mix it up sometimes and use different language. And I, I, yeah, I like animal freedom and I I've started also saying animal free, like animal free, like when I'll you know, mm-hmm. give some food to my students in class, I'll sometimes I'll say it's vegan, but other times I'll like to say it's animal free, you know? <laughs> Um, it's right. free of animal products or nothing taken from an animal, I'll say, you know, so you just kind of play around with the language a little bit. I, you know, I like that. Well, let's right, get exactly. in, into talking about this big study that you did. Now, um, to set it up, I know you note that as animal activists creating campaigns, we tend to focus on telling the public everything that's wrong with animal farming. And your study at Pax Fauna found that most Americans already know a lot about this, especially that it's cruel. And this cruelty does bother people psychologically, but they tend to avoid it. So this gets to questions for me of, of where to place blame or accountability for solving problems. And if we, the public, should be more made more culpable, not just blaming uh, factory farmers. And I say this because in my studies of vegan campaigns, it does seem like an easy argument for animal activists to make is to portray animal agribusiness as the only one in the wrong and to per- portray the meat-eating public as rather innocent, like because we're just unaware because animal agribusiness marketing has lied to us about animal welfare. And when animal activists take this approach, it implies that once we, the public, know the truth about the cruel and harmful animal farming, once our eyes are open, surely we'll stop financially supporting industrial agriculture and go vegan. But it has made sense to me for decades that people already know on some level, which is kind of what you found, that it's an ugly business with a lot of suffering. So what are farmed animal activists supposed to say when like the people, the public do know how bad the mass rearing and killing of animals is, but they don't care enough to work to end it or to stop, to stop supporting it themselves? Right. Yeah. So we definitely found that most people do know that animal agriculture is horrific. And what I was really surprised by is that how articulate they are mm-hmm. at telling us, I try not to think about it. And I'm sure that some of your listeners can even resonate with that. Like yeah. <laughs> thinking about meat coming from animals is is horrible. And of course we don't want to think about it. And of course, anytime, you know, you're at the grocery store or you're at a restaurant and you're someone who eats animals, you just, of course, you don't want to think about where those animals came from. And it's pretty easy not to think about it. You know, it's pretty easy to think about all sorts of other things about your, your choice and about what kinds of foods you like to eat and what kind of tastes you like and what kind of recipes and nutritional information. There's so many other things you can think about. Yeah. And, and, and still, I was pretty surprised to hear so many people say, I try not to think about it. It'll put me off my food. If I, if I think about what happens to animals in, in factory farms. Um, so that was pretty amazing to me. This, this kind of first layer of just like denial defense. And (laughs) when we just kind of let people talk through their, their beliefs, um, we had people in an early stage of research, we had people on there for a 30 minute interview where we just asked lots of open-ended questions. What comes to mind? What do you think about animals used for food? 
And under that layer of kind of, I don't want to think about it. I, I try not to think about it. They still had, you know, 28 minutes left. So they would talk then about, they would go into this ambivalence. They would say, well, I mean, yeah, I do feel bad, but like, and then they'd bring up all, all these justifications about, about culture, about taste, about nutrition, about convenience, about cost. I mean, you know them all. Right. And, and even just not providing any kind of retort to those, they would generally talk themselves through to this, this final layer that they couldn't get through without help, which we called futility. The sense that like, it's not that I don't care. It's that nothing I can do as an individual consumer, there's a really, really strong belief that these, these participants had, that nothing I can do as an individual consumer is going to make a difference for animals. So why should I suffer? Like, why should I pay more or be inconvenienced or be isolated from my friends and my community and my culture for something that's not even going to make a difference? And this, this sense of futility was really, really common. I mean, nearly every participant who could kind of talk it all through got there. And the one thing that really seemed to help them through was what we call the, um, we call the evolved together frame or the, the global citizen frame. I want to say citizen frame, not in that one has to be a citizen to participate, but in that we're participating in society. We're not just individuals who make choices at the grocery store and at restaurants about what we want to eat. We are people who have a say in how society is run. And just like when we think about, like, would I vote for a gasoline tax, even though I sometimes drive a car. It's, I'm not thinking about myself as, as a car driver. I'm not thinking of like, well, that's my team and I need to represent my team and not vote for gasoline taxes. I'm thinking of myself, if I go to a voting booth, say, as, as a citizen, as a, as a participant in society. And that's what we really want to do with food is have this shift from people thinking about the issue of animals used for food as an issue of consumerism, which is taste, price, convenience, everything that I think about when I'm shopping for food into something about, about being a global citizen, into something about um, evolution and, and public health and, and our society's values, um, you know, where, about thinking of, of the way that, ways that society has evolved in big ways all the time. So this is kind of the biggest, biggest key recommendation that we, we have from our study is that we really want to shift from this consumer-centric thinking to voter-centric narratives. And that means giving people a ch something, giving some people something besides go vegan or buy this instead, giving them something like vote or call your representative or um, volunteer for this campaign to gather signatures for a ballot initiative, um, all sorts of much more specific asks that we need to be able to give the public so that they have some way to understand the movement as something that they can relate to as a voter and a citizen and not just as a consumer. And if farmed animal activists are to shift more towards crafting campaigns that motivate citizen actions towards like policy change, because that, that came up in the reports, do, what should some of those new policies be? Because I know we aren't just advocating for animal welfare improvements to industrial farming, like, you know, larger cages or something. Uh, and, and we don't want to just reform a bad system. So did you get a sense for, okay, if we're all evolving together, but it's not just about going vegan, what are some of those things we could be pushing the whole, our whole society, our government, our institutions to do um, if, if what we want to do is that evolving together message that um, it's not futile. <laughs> I'm not just an individual with not making much of a difference, a drop in the bucket. I'm citizen working collectively to, for great new policies, you know, that'll improve society. So I guess what what should some of those new policies be? 
Right. Yeah. This is a, a really big question. And I'll caveat all of this by saying that we're pretty early in the research on this question. Yeah. Um, some ideas that were promising included a, a meat tax, especially when that meat tax is paired with funding alternatives, making alternatives cheaper. Mm. Um, we're also really interested in things like a slaughterhouse ban or a CAFO ban in a, in a city or a state, something that, that bans a, a particular practice that people don't agree with, that people don't want near them. And make some kind of precedent that this is the type of thing that society can do and that, and that society is moving forward into doing. Um, yeah. we're, we're also interested in, in product bans, um, in, in banning the more specific products that are associated with particularly horrific cruelty. Um, like we, we've seen foie gras bans, um, in, in different jurisdictions and interested in things like, like veal bans or, or imagine like a chick culling ban. Um, banning eggs that are banning the production of eggs through a process that kills all the babies, baby boys at, at birth. Um, we're interested in a lot of these different policies, and um, we're definitely still in the process of of thinking about them, of, of testing them, of, of having some kind of um, evidence is really what we want of which ones of these are. Um, we're really interested in working on something that's both winnable and will really help to tell that story that society is moving together away from using animals for food. And like you said, we don't really think that welfare um, improvements are going to do that. I, I do think that there are some uh, real benefits, real um, pros to welfare improvements. And it's not really what we're interested in because we really want to be telling the story that society is moving together away from using animals for food. And um, I'm curious about some of the product bans. I could see them going either way if we put them in front of some focus groups or some interviews. Is that putting people more in the consumer frame, thinking of themselves as someone who would buy this product or not, or are they thinking of themselves as a citizen who's going to vote for the world that they want to see? So I still have questions about those. And we are really interested in um, maybe doing a slaughter ban in the in the near future. Right. And I, I liked, I, I was, you know, watching also one of the videos that was at the narrative.paxfauna.org site where it explains the report a little bit more. Um, and you all were talking about Sometimes if if we test messages that say like a meat tax or a ban on slaughterhouses or a ban on meat, that that seems too radical for most meat eating Americans. Um, but then so you could go towards something that's more in the incentive category, such as subsidizing, like you mentioned, subsidizing uh, plant based food or plant based. I've always wanted them to subsidize, you know, um, organic uh, mm -hmm. produce would be nice and take away the subsidies from all the animal agribusiness commodities and things like that. Um, so that I got the impression that that might at least at this point be um, a little bit more, um, gain more support from people. Yeah, it is interesting how kind of you would think that the less radical your ask, the the more people would support it. And what was interesting, at least in these in this study, in these um, interviews and focus groups, we would ask them uh, towards the end of an interview or a focus group if they would support a policy like a banning slaughter in their state in the next five years, something relatively extreme for, for most people. Yeah. And they would say, no, 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 that's way too fast, um, maybe in 30 years. And so we would ask the next group, okay, what if we ban slaughter in your state in 30 years? They would say, no, 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 that's way too fast. Let's, and it kind of just kept going. And we would, we would find that they would sort of suggest more and more um, moderate policies until we got to like an education pro program or something that was just basically basically nothing at all. 
So we definitely um, believe not that, you know, we should follow that and just ask for less and less so that we'll get a yes. Um, but we really, we really understand the ask of the public as something that has value in and of itself. Um, there's this campaign right now called Yes on IP3 in Oregon, which is not a Pax Bono project, but I find really inspiring because what they're doing is asking for what they really want as animal liberation advocates. Um, yeah. They're asking for a policy that would ban the killing and breeding of animals in the state of Oregon. Wow. And it's not, I mean, I would be very surprised if it were to pass. And the value of putting that on the ballot and having people think that this is the this is an end goal or this is some direction that somebody thinks society is moving, I think is extremely powerful. Um, yeah, it, like it's planting a seed and, and creating a moral vision, even if some people aren't or a lot of people aren't ready for that yet. It is a, a direction. Absolutely. I love that language of creating a moral vision um, and just politicizing the issue. You know, I think that yeah. to a lot of people, animal rights doesn't feel political. Those don't feel like victims for a lot of people um, yeah. in, a, in a political way. And I think that putting a question on a ballot that is something we really do want to see in this world, um, I think is, is pretty powerful towards just inserting animals into the political conversation. And I know there was a big focus on evolving together toward, you know, as kind of citizens and voters, but could there be collective action where we're evolving together, but as collective consumers, like trying, which is some things we're trying to do now, trying to get our schools to be mostly plant-based or working to get our favorite restaurants to have more plant-based options or ensuring major celebration events serve great vegan food or grocery stores having more affordable plant-based food, or even maybe in the future, even though it, some people find it um, controversial, but the cultivated meats, the lab meats, it, getting them into the mainstream to replace meat from animal farming. So it, it, in terms of like, some of them will be market-based um, collective actions. Some of them will be government-based collective action, perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that all of those are, are great policy ideas. Um, I mean, it, the kind of default veg program, the getting... Yes getting um, plant-based meals as, as the default option in all, like right now, in all New York City hospitals and, and in other places being worked on. I think that kind of thing is, is huge. And to me, that doesn't feel like consumer action. You know, It's not that I'm gonna go to the hospital in New York City, I'm gonna order vegan and that's gonna be my action. It's that somebody who's has something else on their mind, because of course they do, because they're in the hospital. Their, yeah. their default, their, the thing that gets brought to them if they don't make another, another request, is vegan, I think that that's huge. I think that has a huge symbolic yeah. value that really helps to tell the story that yeah, society is moving away from using animals for food because now the defaults are are plant-based um, and are nonviolent and are you know animal-free, like you say. Right, right. If you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this is In Tune to Nature. I'm host Carrie Freeman talking about a recent study of American attitudes towards using animals for food that suggests how best to strategically frame campaign messages promoting a path to evolving together toward animal freedom and plant-based food systems. We're speaking with Eva Hamer, operations lead at the nonprofit think tank Pax Fauna. Details of the study and some video presentation summaries are found on their website, narrative.paxfauna.org. And that's spelled P-A-X-F-A-U-N-A. -A -A. That's narrative.paxfauna.org. Um, Eva, um, in the few minutes we have left, I know you tested various messages with meat-eating Americans. In crafting our messages to be more persuasive and resonant with Americans who are currently eating animals, what, do you, what can you tell us about striking the right tone or picking the right messengers and focusing on the right content? Yeah, so those are all um, 
for questions we looked into, we we I think the most interesting one for me is that when we used meat eating messengers, people didn't get defensive. It's like you don't pe people felt so defensive sometimes um, if we just brought up the conversation of eating animals, of, of eating animals, of using animals for food. There is something that maybe feels attacked. And when yeah. the messenger is, is is a meat eater, when the messenger says something like, I love a good burger, I love a good steak, and this measure, this law, whatever policy we're advocating for is the right move for the future, it melts away def defensiveness because then if I'm a meat eater, I know that I'm listening to someone who is not judging me. It's it's not about, I don't have to protect myself, I can actually listen to the policy message. Um, we also found that sometimes the less um, messengers who aren't maybe who you would think of as an animal rights activist, they're not they don't fit kind the stereotype. Of, uh, like I'm a stereotype, right. <laughs> like a small <laughs> white woman, you know, oh, surprise, <laughs> surprise, you're vegan. Right, exactly. College educated, um, et cetera. When we have people who are who are non-white, who are working class, who are um, especially older, also these messengers seem to not be met with the same defensiveness that, that our typical messengers might. Right. Um, we also found that the metaphor of evolution felt really effective. And we got that from participants' own language. If a participant was ever able to work themselves through the sense of futility, the sense that there's nothing I can do as an individual consumer to change anything, so why, sh why should I even try? If they could talk themselves out of that, they generally did it with language of evolution. Well, societies evolved in big ways all the time. I can think of, um, interestingly, this didn't work when we said it, but when they said it, they were able to convince themselves. And so I think there's something kind of subtle about invoking other movements to, to say, hey, society changes in big ways all the time. Um, but they might, you know, they might invoke other movements, other ways that they have seen society change in big yeah. ways. Um, we found that it, it worked a little bit better talking about modern, uh, modern movements, like we're seeing, you know, cannabis legalization mm. be a big change right now. Um, that was something that we could kind of compare and we could say, oh, wow, yeah, society is changing in big ways all the time. And I, as a, as a, as a citizen, can be part of that change, even if I'm not ready to go vegan right now, even if veganism has nothing to do with it, is not even on my mind. Um, that was that was a message that felt really useful. And then the third one that I'll I'll mention, and um, listeners can find others on our on our website, is to target humane deception. This this idea that, you know, I think a lot of people think that okay, well, I don't like what happens to animals in factory farms, so I'm going to do it the right way. I'm going to go to my farmer's market, or I'm going to you know buy the really pretty package that costs a lot of money. Um, and when we target humane deception, we like to say something like, it's no secret. Because um, we do want to point out that that's not a solution, that right. it's not about buying something more expensive and saying, okay, now I'm now I'm not part of it, that this really is a system-wide problem. Saying things like it's no secret and you know there's not it's no secret that there's not enough land on the planet to raise every animal in the image that you have in your head of how these animals are raised um, in order to really shift people back into thinking of, of systemic solutions and not kind of individual consumer ones. Right. That's a good point because it is, I do think the natural, and I've mentioned this in my books, that the natural instinct, especially if we're like, oh, factory farming is awful and animals suffer, they'd be like, okay, well, I won't buy from a factory farms, you know, like, but if that's not really the solution, because I, I definitely think we need to problematize the notion of farming anyone. And like you mentioned, the sustain of the unsustainability of that. So I, I also yeah, liked how you're also saying it's no secret that this <laughs> is we can't have just more expensive so-called humane meat that's also you know not going to work. 
Well, we're running out of time, Eva, but just as a quick wrap up for listeners who are interested in getting more involved with studying or implementing strategic communication and effective campaigning for animals, what would you recommend? Well, um, you can get involved with, okay, well, in general, I would recommend that um, people look into the Animal Liberation Conference, liberationconference.org. That's going to happen in June. That's not hosted by us, but it will be speaking there. And it's a great way to first get involved in the movement for anyone interested. Um, otherwise, if you're interested in PaxFauna, you can go to our website, paxfauna.org. We have a mailing list. We have um, a couple of positions that we're hiring for in Denver. And we also have a lot of volunteer opportunities for people who want to help out remotely um, from wherever they are, um, especially in things like uh, graphic design and copy editing in um, website building and in other ways. So definitely a lot of volunteer opportunities with us. Um, and you can join our mailing list at, at our um, website paxmana.org. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. And that way, that's how I got the news of the latest studies that you did. And then you also have a lot of resources on the paxfauna.org website of, you know, other strategies, um, strategic resources and books and, and different things. So mm -hmm. yeah, well, that's the end of our show, but I want to thank you, Eva Hamer, for being with us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. Thanks for the work that you and Aiden and Zoe and others at Pax Fauna are doing to make sure the movement for animal freedom is more thoughtful and strategic with their messaging, making us more effective citizen advocates, transforming American society and policies to be respectful of fellow animal species. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature, broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, online at wrfg.org and on Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com slash Nature. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman asking you to please support independent, non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. And remember to take care of yourself and others, including other species like fellow fauna. Thank you for listening. Cheers. <laughs>